This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Thank you, Ron. <laughs> I, you know, sometimes I'm impressed if I if someone introduces me, but tonight it just makes me feel a little old. Uh, you know, <laughs> just I've done. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. I've done a lot of different things. Uh, one thing I haven't done a lot of actually is give talks at other centers associated with other Buddhist traditions. So uh, I'm glad to have a chance to be here tonight, and um, I want to thank. Shout out Catherine for, for working with Ron to organize this, uh, to Ron for putting together this series, and to all of you for being here tonight. Um, I uh, have a lot to say. The, the typical dilemma for a, a teacher is that there's more to say than there is time to say it in. Uh, I will try to watch my time because I have a kind of... Uh, structure to what it is that I want to say. But of course, at the outset, I should probably say that, that this is a huge topic we're looking at. Uh, there's something very interesting happening here. Um, it, it's a little bit like uh, being in, uh, I don't know, just being a regular person and uh, every night perhaps you, you look at the news or you read something on the web and then one day uh, the big news story involves you, you know. And, and it's it's a big surprise, uh, and and that's kind of where we are with the with the Dharma. Um, uh, one day we woke up and suddenly everybody was talking about mindfulness, uh, and we thought, well, wait a minute, that's our practice. That's what we do. What are they doing talking about it? <laughs> um, so um, that's kind of the situation we find ourselves in, and in some ways it's very. Um, stimulating and opens up a lot of possibilities in other ways for those of us who've been involved with uh, the Buddhist tradition for a long time. It raises a lot of uh, questions and challenges uh, because the the whole question of how Buddhism comes to the West is very much, very much an open question. There was a Zen teacher toward the beginning of the 20th century who said um, bringing Buddhism to the West is like holding a lotus to a rock and hoping that it takes root. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge. And uh, it may be that if we say, <laughs> you know, if we say, well, okay, now we have mindfulness, so Buddhism has made it, right? Buddhism is in. But, but it may be that, that uh, you know, what's being transmitted is not quite the Buddhism that we imagine we have some insight into, and so that's where the question comes up. Now, I don't want to approach that question tonight in any kind of a technical sense, and I'll say that the tradition that I'm in, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and particularly the Nyingma school of Tibetan Buddhism, has all sorts of practices and approaches, but I don't think, I think it's fair to say, we, we don't put the same kind of emphasis on mindfulness as a separate, distinct practice that you find in the insight meditation tradition, the vipassana meditation tradition, the whole tradition that comes out of Southeast Asia. Mindfulness is very important, and the, the study of Abhidharma is very important in, in the Nyingma Buddhist tradition, and that's where you see a lot of discussion of mindfulness in, in many of its different aspects. But um, 
the people who guide you in your own tradition here have a lot to say about that, and it's a very complex question or subject, or a very rich subject, I should say, even if it wasn't a matter of, um, you know, what's the West going to do with this mindfulness thing? You could spend a long time really trying to understand and study what mindfulness is in, in just any one of the different Buddhist traditions, and they all differ slightly in their approach. So I'm not going to try to go into that. Um, instead, um, I want to talk about the varieties of mindfulness or the approaches to mindfulness that we could take today, that we do take today, and and um, try to sh- suggest some connections between them and what we uh, as as individuals interested in our own practice, but also interested in the Dharma, and and at least speaking for myself, very interested in this question, as I've said, of how Buddhism takes root in the West, uh, how we can understand that, how we can approach it, what what do we do with this uh, sudden influx of interest? Some people uh, call it mindfulness mania. Uh, There's just a tremendous surge of interest. So what do we do with that? Um, One thing I think we can say is we we, those of us who are involved in the traditional Buddhist practice, we, we can't really ignore it. Uh, I was reading something just the other day that said, you know, very soon the number of people who've been exposed to mindfulness in a completely secular context is going to vastly outnumber the people who've been approached, who've been introduced to it in a more traditional Buddhist context. And uh, that will be it, you know. The, the the more traditional side will be submerged in in this wave of interest in mindfulness, uh, unless we find the right kind of accommodation. So, so that's part of what I want to look at today. Um, I want to come at it in a particular way, and it has to do with what I've been thinking about some in the last uh, year or so. As as Ron mentioned, I'm the director of an organization called the Mangalam Research Center for Buddhist Languages. And what we're looking to do is find the right vocabulary, do the research that will allow us to find the right vocabulary and language to, to really bring the Buddhist teachings into the West. And that means doing a lot of study, of course, of the canonical languages in Buddhism. But... Uh, it's just as important, as I see it, to investigate the resources that are available in the West that might be appropriate for transmitting Buddhist teachings. And um, partly, be- I suppose, because I did study uh, political theory, political philosophy a long, long time ago, um, I- I've always been interested in, in some of the roots of our culture, and in particular, the 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 Greco-Roman tradition, or or really the Greeks when it comes to political theory, and then the Hellenistic tradition. And it seems to me that in some ways, um, of course nowadays, those resources are not widely known, even in our own culture, even though they are uh, the foundation of how we think about a lot of different things. Uh, But in some ways, those ways of thinking are... um, the natural place, the natural meeting ground for Buddhism. You know, the the culture of ancient Greece was in certain respects, I think, a lot more like the culture of traditional Buddhist countries. And if we could revive uh, 
an appreciation of our own heritage and then use that as a way to come into dialogue with Buddhism. I think that could be very fruitful. So what I want to talk about tonight is is a uh, kind of a case study in that because I want to start at least by talking about the um, the vocabulary or, or the approach that's available if you look at some of the great Western schools of philosophy for mindfulness. So it turns out, and I'm going to be focusing basically, uh, and just for a few minutes, uh, I'm going to be focusing on the Stoics and the Epicureans. They were both schools that were active uh, in the Hellenistic era, so in the first few centuries of the Common Era, and they exerted an influence down through the ages. There are still people nowadays who, who think of themselves as following the Stoic tradition, not so much the Epicurean. Um, those traditions uh, were about how you live your life. Uh, and in that sense, they, they had a lot in common with Buddhism. They, they were not philosophies in the sense that we tend to think about philosophy in the Anglo-American tradition, which is about conceptual puzzlement, as a teacher of mine said once, or trying to clarify the language we use to get at, uh, to, to make sense of our world. Uh, they were really about how to live your life. And both the Stoics and the Epicureans uh, put a lot of emphasis on what they called prosoche. And prosoche, uh, one more term to add to all these foreign words you have to pick up if you're, if you're interested here. Prosoche essentially means mindfulness um, or paying attention. Uh, when you look at the English uh, translations, it's because they don't come out of the tradition, they don't usually translate it as mindfulness, but paying attention, being aware in each moment. That's what prosoche, roughly speaking, is about. And when you look at how the Stoics thought about that and how the Epicureans thought about that, and then you look at how uh, the, the secular Buddhist movement, let's call it, uh, and, and, and the great representative of that is mindfulness-based stress reduction. How many of you have done a course in MBSR, by the way? Okay, so well, fair, fair number, good. Um, so when you, when you look at the way that, that mindfulness is presented there, the way it's presented in the Stoic and Epicurean traditions, and then in, the, uh, in traditional Buddhism, let's say, you have a lot to talk about. Uh, especially in a short period of time. Um, so let me start. Basically, I want to lay out four different approaches that we could think about. And the first one is the one that I think comes up most clearly in MBSR, in, in, in secular Buddhism, the way mindfulness is presented there, and, and that is bear attention in the present moment. You're, you're simply aware of what is happening in your experience in the present moment. And that was also emphasized a lot in the Stoic and Epicurean traditions. Now, to be clear, as far as I know, uh, the reading I've done suggests they didn't have a meditation practice in the way we would think about it, um, but they did reflect a lot on their, their situation in life. Um, and um, our word meditation, I mean, our word that Buddhism has taken over, comes from the style of meditation, really, that was used at that time, which was more more of a reflection, but definitely was meant to go into the very heart of your being. You were you were meditating in a way that touched your own existence. It wasn't just thinking idly about certain things. So, 
when the Stoics and the Epicureans talked about mindfulness in the present moment, the point that they made, and I think it's very much the same point that is made in secular Buddhist traditions and in traditional Buddhism, is that our problems, to a very large extent, come from the fact that we don't know how to settle into the present moment, and instead we find ourselves constantly going off into worries and anticipation and anxiety about the future, or regret or emotional reactions about the past. So we kind of spread ourselves out across time, um, and we put most of our energy, or at least a lot of our energy, into the past on the one hand, the future on the other hand. And because of that, we find ourselves unable to really uh, settle into experience. The mind is always agitated, always uh, racing. And I I think anybody who's had any contact uh, with mindfulness-based stress reduction with traditional Buddhism, all of that will sound very familiar. And that was talked about by the Stoics and the Epicureans as well. The sense was that if you could focus on the present moment, you would naturally settle into a peace, a state of well-being in which you could let go of tension and let go of stress and let go of the many, many, many distractions that keep us from really being who we are. So all that, I think, that's the kind of fundamental basis, and that's the first approach to mindfulness. Um, the the second approach um, is um, is one that... I'm taking mostly from the Epicurean tradition. And the reason I find it helpful to talk about the Epicureans and the Stoics is because I think they give us some some handles into ways of thinking about mindfulness that we maybe don't ordinarily use. So the Epicureans said something very interesting about being in the present moment, about prosoke. They said the, the purpose of being in the present moment is to learn to deeply love what's happening right now. To be completely accepting of the moment. So if you say that the, the, the watchword for the first approach is attention, uh, you, could, you could say the watchword for the second approach is appreciation. Just appreciating what's happening right now. So you engage the present moment fully and you experience the, the wonder of it the, the simple wonder that anything is happening at all, that you're alive to be here, uh, or wherever your mind goes, the, the, the appreciation of, of this whole assembly of experience. It's, it's pretty miraculous. And that's what the Epicureans emphasized. So what the Epicureans, in terms of their kind of attitude toward life, uh, what, what they said was, relax into the present moment. Let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of a sense that things should be different from the way they are. Simply accept, enjoy, enjoy and appreciate the way things are. That approach is really interesting if you think about it in terms of classical dharma. Um, I, 
I don't see it that often in the text. And of course, <laughs> it's a very rich tradition, the Buddhist tradition. And uh, there may be, uh, there are many, many things I haven't uh, worked with, come across, studied. So maybe it's there. But not so much. I was trying to think about it. And um, the closest I could come is a Zen saying some of you know, which uh, says, um, to study the Dharma is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be one with the hundred thousand things. And that oneness with everything, I think that begins to, to gesture in that direction. Um, I will say that, that my own teacher, Tartang Tulku, uh, has written in various places about the importance of really appreciating the beauty of the present moment. And uh, he talks a lot about appreciating the beauty of nature, for instance. And, and I think think part of the reason for that is that if there isn't a certain sense of well-being, then it's very difficult to go farther on the path. And if, if, you, if you experience a kind of discontent in every moment, uh, then, then you can't settle into your experience and begin to ask what's really going on. So there's a very natural connection to the traditional Dharma, but I think you don't see it so much. Now, you see it maybe more in contemporary Buddhist traditions, partly because, actually, I, I think if you could trace it out, I haven't really done this, but partly because a, a, a lot of what gets transmitted as Buddhism nowadays is really picking up on certain strands of Western thought. So a lot of the um, the Buddhist encounter or a lot of the Western encounter with Buddhism is strongly flavored by um, certain elements in romantic thought, 19th century romantic thought. And then if you say, well, where did they get their ideas? If you push it back for a while, I think you'd kind of come to the Epicureans, among others. That's a big, complicated story. But uh, this whole notion of, of deeply appreciating and enjoying the present moment, you do see it talked about, you um, but it's not something that um, that you that you that, that gets a lot of emphasis, say, in traditional Buddhism. And as far as I know, uh, it, it doesn't get talked about that much in in the kind of uh, secular Buddhism. Although, again, the thread is always there. You know, we 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 do love being in nature. We do love uh, beauty when we can find it. And uh, so we, we import that into Buddhist practice. But I think it's a little bit, the tendency is that we're importing it. Okay, the third approach, so the first one is attention, the second one is appreciation. Right? The third approach that I want to talk about uh, is um, keeping your focus on what really matters. So you're in the present moment, and in the present, you are constantly aware of, and I think you could say reminding yourself of, um, what matters to you. What are your own values? What are your own concerns? What is your own best understanding and insight? So the key word there is, um, I'm going to say, recollection. Um, Or you could just say remembering. So we have attention and appreciation, and then recollection. Recollection or remembering, I'm just saying recollection because remembering is a little awkward as a gerund, but 
Um, recollection uh, is an important term here because the Pali term sati in Sanskrit smirti, which is the word that gets translated as mindfulness, the root meaning of that word is remembering, to remember. And that element of remembering comes up a lot in the traditional teachings, so that sometimes when translators are working with text, sometimes in the word they get the word sati or smirti, they really need to translate it as remembering. And that is the ordinary meaning of the word. And then it was, uh, I mean, in, in kind of everyday speech, you might say. Um, so it was then adapted to mean what we now translate as mindfulness, but that sense of remembering is always there. Now, now what does that mean in practice, remembering? It means that you stay with your best understanding. And if you look at the traditional sources that talk about what mindfulness is, that's a tremendously important element. Um, so for you, know, you talk about the marks of conditioned existence or any, you know, as you know, many of you, the Dharma is, is rich with these lists that, that describe uh, what's what the way things are right so you have the three marks of conditioned existence uh, impermanence and suffering and no self right? well remembering has to do with not forgetting that insight i mean if you've heard that teaching and you've reflected on it and you cultivate it in your own experience which are the stages through which you really come to um, embody the Buddha's teachings. If you've done that, then mindfulness in the sense of remembering has, has to do with not losing sight of what you know. So uh, the phrase that comes to mind or came to my mind was, you know, keep your eye on the prize. Right? Uh, you, you know what's so, you know what's matter, what matters, and mindfulness means not forgetting that. So if you look at the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, uh, where the Buddha talks about the four foundations of mindfulness, um, it's a very rich text, there's a lot to say about it, but over and over and over again the sense is, you look at your experience, even something as simple as the breath, you look at it in terms of fundamental Buddhist teachings, you don't forget that orientation. It's very important in mindfulness. And that actually is exactly the place where there seems to me to be a, a strong split between the um, traditional understanding of mindfulness and the, the bare attention approach to mindfulness that you would find in, in MBSR or, or, some, or another teaching like that. Uh, the two, the, the attention aspect is important the appreciation aspect we talked about, this remembering aspect in the traditional teachings is really vital. But when you look at secular Buddhism, so I'm just going to use that label for right now, when you look at secular Buddhism, I think that's exactly where there's a parting of the ways. Because in, in a secular approach, you say, you know, Buddhism may teach this or it may teach that and, and that may be interesting or it may not. But you know, I don't have to accept that. I don't have to care about that. Paying attention. 
paying attention, being in the present moment in that sense, that's enough. And I think that there's something about our culture, actually, um, which is is really hostile. It might be too strong a word, but I don't think so. Is really hostile to um, working with a particular understanding. You know, you you come in, you sit down. They tell you to meditate and watch your breath. And you say, okay, that's a, that, I can do that. You know, that's a practice. That's a technique like doing push-ups or, or, you know, there's something I can do here. Um, and that may work. I'm willing to give that a try. But if you come in and you sit down and they say, reflect on the fact that um, suffering is, is universal or, or reflect on the fact that uh, nothing persists, nothing endures, that everything is impermanent. Maybe. You, know, you might be willing to kind of entertain that idea. But when you come to the point where you say, if you're going to continue with this practice, you really, it's really important to have insight, to see what, you know, what did the Buddha mean when he said everything is impermanent. Then we get a little bit of resistance because, well, the because is very complicated. I think in, in our culture, we are not, um, we're not interested in having people tell us the way things are. We'd rather figure it out for ourselves. Uh, we'd rather have our own view. And uh, maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, you know, we kind of... <laughs> but it's ours, and we don't want someone coming along and, and trying to impose a particular belief system. So to the extent that people say, well, Buddhism has its own set of beliefs, and if you're going to practice Buddhism, uh, you need to kind of, at least provisionally entertain the possibility that those beliefs are true, you start to lose people. It's very different to say, I'll do this technique. And that's in fact why people say, you know, mindfulness has nothing to do with Buddhism. Mindfulness is a practice. You can do it. Anybody can do it. You don't have to worry about impermanence. You certainly don't have to worry about no self. Uh, You don't, you know, all of these questions that become very uh, central if, if you study the, the Buddha's teachings, none of that really counts. And so this sense of recollection, of, of not forgetting what it is that you're investigating, not forgetting the teachings, really, at a very fundamental level, that's where there's a parting of the ways. So even if you look at, again at the Mahasatipatthana Sutta and the part of it that uh, really gets taken up in, in secular Buddhism. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you're supposed to be mindful of or encouraged to be mindful of in that sutta that people do not care to investigate. You know, there's all the, all the cemetery meditations, you know, there's the repulsiveness of the human body, there's all these things. People say, well, we don't need that part, do we? You know, so you just focus, but even if you just focus on the breath, you know, even in that, the Buddha says, look at how the breath comes and goes. Look at how it arises and falls. It doesn't endure for even a moment. So you're looking from a particular perspective. You're remembering what it is that matters in this inquiry, you know, in, this, in this experience 
just staying focused on the breath, and, and that's why we started with some breath meditation, because it's fresh in your minds, uh, I hope. And, uh, and you can see, you know, focusing on the breath is a great practice in terms of attention. It does take you, it helps you let go of the past, let go of the future, and therefore let go of, of um, the causes for emotionality and frustration and anxiety and upset and so on. Um, very important that way. Perhaps it also gives you a sense of um, appreciation for how rich experience is. You know, in a single breath, there's so much. But that third part, that's a little harder. And I think that's where the distinction comes. So that would be okay if you if you said. Okay, so we're just going to go with the first meaning of mindfulness, you know. Um, and we don't care, maybe the second one's kind of nice, okay. Third one, no, no, no. You know, we'll let the traditional Buddhists have that. Um, we'll just do the attention part. That would be okay, except for two things, or three things, I guess. One is that we are using the word, right? It's the same word. So if someone comes in and says, um, I want to practice mindfulness, and I know what it is because, you know, because I've taken a course. And so, don't talk to me about this third thing. Don't talk to me about remembering the teachings. There's something. There's danger there. Now, maybe you come in and you say, you in a much more open way, said, you know, please, I want to learn more about how this is understood traditionally. Well, then you're fine. But that's a potential stumbling block right there. Um, a second problem is is that nowadays more and more, um, and I'm thinking here specifically about MBSR, uh, which was a technique developed uh, by John Kabat-Zinn, and uh, he did it in the, completely in the medical context. He himself is a doctor, and uh, it was used for stress reduction and for treatment of certain kinds of uh, clinical conditions, both psychological and uh, physical. Uh, for many years he taught it like that. And more recently he said, well, now that it's become so popular, <laughs> you know, now that it's well established and there's no risk of people misinterpreting it or of losing funding, because that motivates a lot of these kinds of decisions, um, now uh, let's take a look at the Dharma root. And, and he has started to talk about what he calls universal dharma. He said, well, the Buddha taught this, the universe, Buddha taught that, but really the fundamental, the heart of the teachings is this focus on the present. And that's taking the attention side of mindfulness to the exclusion of the recollection, the remembering side of mindfulness. And, and that is potentially a problem too. So when I said before that that uh, you know we're we're at this crossroads and you know a certain sense of being swept away I guess I've mixed my metaphors there but but you know we're we're standing on the bank of a river and the river is rising and the waters are surging and maybe we'll be swept away I'm trying to stay with the metaphor here um that's the risk okay so those are the three um, aspects, and, and, the, and, and I'm going to get to the fourth in a moment, but just to kind of um, come back and, and summarize those three, uh, the attention aspect, which you can see in the breath, right? simply staying with the breath so that 
our ordinary commitments to the past and the future drop away. The appreciation aspect, so that you begin to realize how rich every moment of experience is and you have the possibility of accepting with joy and appreciation all that life presents. And if you can really accept fully, of course, then and this is what the Epicurean said, how can you not be happy? How can you not be filled with joy? And the remembering aspect, which is you take the breath just as you take every other moment in your experience as an opportunity to bring yourself back to what really matters, bring yourself back to what you know has value and meaning. And this is one place where the Stoics and the Epicureans alike um, did something that you also find in the Buddhist tradition. They would make these little sayings. I, I wish I had a few of them. I mean, one of them is is uh, something like, uh, treat every moment as though it were your last, but also your first, which is very nice. Um, and they would write them out on cards, you know, and carry around with, carry them around with them. And uh, there are things like that done in Buddhist, the Buddhist tradition too. Um, don't forget, remember, that's the third aspect, and that's the one where. Um, you're asked to explore this possibility that not every approach, not every experience can stand on its own, or yes, perhaps it can, I guess in terms of appreciation, but the possibility that you could turn it toward deeper insight, that remembering, that recollection, that's the one that we tend to lose sight of. so now I want to talk to uh, turn about talk about the fourth aspect, um, and um, I'm going to present this uh, as as a way of possibly moving from the first, the attention, to or through the third, the the remembering. Um, I don't have a, a, a single word uh, a single word for this one. I guess if I, I... I didn't have one, but if I were going to come up with one right now, I think I'd say... Um, well, for right now, I'll say something else a little later. For right now, let's just call it inquiry. Um, what I have in mind here is that when you focus on the present moment, you... You do it with the sense of asking, what's going on in this present moment? What's available? And the fact is, I'm going to say the fact as though I were proclaiming, uh, that's not quite right, the, the, uh, the suggestion, <laughs> the suggestion that I want to make <coughs> is that when we're open to the whole of our experience, and that, of course, can happen in the breath, too. When we're open to the whole of our experience, then there is a, a richness, not only in the sense that, that whatever it is we focus on expands in, 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 in its beauty or its fullness or its wholeness, but in the sense that what we start off focusing on turns out to be able to, or turns out to 
open out into a kind of a multiple dimensionality. Um, so when you're working with the breath, let me just take the breath as a very simple example here. So just keeping, just staying on the level of the body, um, where is it that you are going to focus on the breath? Is it going to be in the belly, the rising and falling of the diaphragm? Is it going to be in the expanding and, and um, contracting, I guess, of the rib cage? Is it going to be in the way the breath, breath passes through the throat and to the rest of the body? Is it going to be at the nostrils where the breath enters? Now, different Buddhist traditions give different answers to that. Um, or different teachers will say, well, focus here or focus here. There's, there's a lot of different possibilities. Um, and I'm not here to say one or the other is better. Um, I'm just using that as an example to say, when you ask what's actually going on, whatever you're focused on with the breath is um, richer than you think it is. You're always leaving something out of account. And you could open that up. And that's the kind of uh, inquiry that I have in mind. So if you move then beyond the physical, then you might say, for instance, when I breathe, does it really make sense to stop with my imagined sense of uh, you know, this, this skin that uh, embodies me, that, that is my outer boundary? So the breath always has to do with what goes on, you know, starting at the moment when it enters my nostrils and, and my mouth and then goes down. Is that the right place to stop? Or could I follow, just to take a little bit further, could I follow the breath out you know, when it, when, and, and in? Right? Could it extend a little bit beyond my body? But then you could take it further than that and you could say, whatever my experience is in this moment, it's a breathing experience. So if I hear a sound, there's a breathingness to the sound. That is, in the hearing, I don't stop breathing. It's one of the great things about the breath. We're always breathing, so it's always an opportunity to, um, to bring in more. So whatever else is going on, there's the breath. Right? And so then you can say, well, my, all of my experience is a breathing in and a breathing out. What happens if we expand it out that way? What happens if we add that dimensionality in? And then maybe you find yourself asking, if you work with just that example that I'm using now of the breath, maybe you find yourself asking, um, does it really make sense to think of the self as the one who breathes? You know, that I'm the one who's breathing? So at the very beginning of the practice, when I gave you a sentence or so of instruction, I said that I, I like to usually think not so much in terms of being aware of the breath because that already presupposes the idea that there is someone over here being aware and then there's the breath over here which is the object of that awareness. That's what that little word of does to us. So instead of doing that, what if there's just a breathing? And what if there isn't someone who's doing the breathing? Am I making a commitment without even realizing it to a subject and object structure? And those of you who, who 
are familiar with teachings of the Buddha will find very quickly that uh, the division between subject and object, between the self that grasps and the object that's grasped at, is considered to be a source of tremendous confusion and suffering. So are we already building that in? Just in, the, just in the simple act of breathing. What if we were ready to look there? Now, notice in the course of doing that kind of inquiry, or, yeah, I'll call it inquiry, in the course of asking those kinds of questions, we just automatically find ourselves looking at teachings that turn out to be really central in the Buddhist tradition. So, is that some kind of trick, you know? Do I, do I set up my questions in such a way that, that they turn out leading me into the Buddha's teachings? Well, there's probably some of that. I mean, I can't be aware of all the little subconscious things I'm doing, all the little patterns that I've incorporated over time. But um, ideally, the questions that you ask would come out of your own experience once you're ready to question every part of that experience. So w- this fourth way of, in, of, of being aware in the present moment is like the first in the sense that it just requires attention, but it's also completely, well, I shouldn't say completely different, but it also brings in an added dimension because it says, don't think you know what it is that you're aware of. Don't make the assumption that when you sit in practice and look at the present moment, you know what's going on. Start instead from the idea that you don't have a clue and that your job is to start over again in each moment. Each moment is your first, each moment is your last, and then you start again. That kind of awareness is a mindfulness but it brings into play what I would think of as a kind of active minding. That's a word that I've been playing with lately. So the kind of mindfulness practice that we may be used to, and I'm not criticizing anybody nor am I assuming that I can judge what your practice is. I don't have any idea what your practice is. But the, the, there is a way in which you might think of mindfulness where you say it's, it's, it's a kind of a pure receptivity. And we say, oh, that's a good thing. Don't make any judgments. Right? Don't try to turn your experience into something that it's not. Simply receive whatever experience is. But when we do that, we've sold ourselves short, I think, in a certain fundamental way, because we do have this capacity to investigate, to inquire, to be active in the way that we live our lives um, mentally, to be ready to ask, to imagine, to propose, even to speculate. So many possibilities that are are open for us. And I think that that quality of, of open possibilities actually speaks very well to the Western mind, you know, with its science fiction and its relativism and its works of fiction which take over 
everything until, you know, it, it's such an open question, it's such a common theme in our culture. I think not any other cultures really. Um, you know, how can we tell fiction from reality? Well, that's a great question. Good question to ask. It's one of the ways in which we can open our presuppositions, in which we can mind actively, we can be actively mindful. So when we allow for that possibility, I think we don't have to feel um, stuck by or in the third alternative. Not that it's not a great alternative, it is, which is to say, remember what has value. But we don't have to commit ourselves in advance. We can say, I'm going to discover what has value. And I'm going to do it again and again and again. And the answer that I give now may not be the answer that I give later. It doesn't matter. In every moment, there is something that has value. There is something that is meaningful for me. And there is a way in which I can explore it and go more deeply. And that kind of mindfulness, I like to imagine, could be a bridge between the traditional Dharma and the kind of secular Buddhist Dharma that uh, rises like a tide through the world. Okay. So, I'd be very happy to take um, comments, questions. Yes? Well, first of all, it seems to me there's a difference between the secularization of mindfulness and the secularization of the Buddhism. There is actually an international movement that calls itself secularization, but they claim to be committed to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, but they're against an ecclesiastical establishment. Right. Buddhism is lost in religion. And it seems to me what's happening in America with the secularization of mindfulness Mm-hmm. as a practice that's kind of been detached from the rest of Buddhism is more of a reduction mm-hmm. than the movement that calls itself secular Buddhism. So basically, secular mindfulness and secular Buddhism are two different. I, I, I think you're right. I stand corrected. I, I was using secular Buddhism as a uh, kind of an easy shorthand for for talking about a, a process where you you strip away something in the teachings. But if I had thought of the term secular mindfulness, that would have been the right term. Because you're right, secular Buddhism, you described it very well. It's something different. It would be very interesting to explore the connection, but that would take us beyond the theme that we're exploring now, and this theme is rich enough as it is. So, thank you. Mm -hmm. So I think I can see where mindfulness, like MBSR, uh, could get big enough to overwhelm if you call it uh, uh, Buddhism mm-hmm. uh, in our society. But Buddhism in our society is already overwhelmed by the sheer number of people who go to professional sporting events or that believe that <laughs> competitive capitalism is the highest and best economic system and so forth. So if my in a big way, uh, I think it's taking more away from the uh, competitive part of life. Mm-hmm, from, mm-hmm. So, not to worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you're right. Um, l- let me bring up one other term from, from uh, the Greeks that I think is very interesting and helpful um, and, and has its parallel in Buddhism, and that term is atopos. Um, the um, Topos is is uh, cognate to our word, um, well, topic, 
but but also like in a topological map. It has to do with a place. Um, and the the idea of etopos it was, was applied to philosophers in, in the ancient world. And the idea was that they didn't have any place. They didn't belong in the society. Um, and and so they made people uneasy. Um, and, and of course, the great example is Socrates, who, who said, you know, I, I kind of stand outside. I'm the, the gadfly. Uh, on, on, on the horse of society, and 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 eventually he was arrested and charged with corrupting the youth and was put to death. Um, I think that Buddhism, um, it, well, let's just say then in the in the traditional Indian culture, you had a different kind of of etopos, which was you left home. I mean, it's a very similar idea, really. The person who practiced Buddhism left the structures of society. Leaving home was the term for it. You know, you, you, and then you went off and became a monk, typically, in, uh, in, the, in, early Buddhist, in the early Buddhist tradition. Um, so I think Buddhism is always outside like that. That doesn't mean that you can't practice it within life, but, or within kind of ordinary life, let's say. Um, but there has to be a way of doing it which leaves you a topos, which leaves you not involved. And I think the concern would be that if Buddhism becomes another topos, let's say, another place you can go, even though it's just this little thing, you know, that as you say, uh, it's, it's already overwhelmed by all the other concerns that people have. But if people no longer, uh, if, if practitioners, let's say, of Buddhism lose that sense that they're, they're in some sense outside, they in some sense don't fit, it's that, it's that not fitting which then allows you to engage in a kind of active minding. So that's really what I'm trying to point towards. But, but your point's well taken, sure. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for the talk. I found it very, very clear. And, and um, I, I took MBSR um, more than 10 years ago. Um, coming to it, I, I have an academic background, critical thinking, and this idea that I don't want to be told what the truth is. Mm-hmm. Speak it for myself kind of mm-hmm. resonates with me. But when I think of John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness, I mm-hmm. see all four parts. Um, he, uh, his definition is paying attention, so that's number one, in a particular way. I think that's number four. Mm-hmm. I think um, on purpose, Number three, mm-hmm. and non-judgmentally is number two. <laughs> um, great. If if you, I don't know whether to say, you know, that's wonderful that all those elements are there and whatever concerns you know I've been trying to point towards, you can actually find them there, or or whether uh, whether to say, and I'm kind of inclined to say this, but I. I'm maybe wrong. I mean, I've never done MBSR. Um, that that if you can find that, then that's great. And if that's what it means for you, then you know, I, I hope what I said tonight helped clarify that in some way. Um, but great, you've got to practice. You know, I'm not saying that you should be doing something different from what you're doing. So if there's a possibility of greater clarity. Uh, in, in however you practice mindfulness and, and a clarity that also 
keeps opening up into more possibilities, then that's wonderful. I have nothing more to add to that. Uh, yes? Well, I wanted to add one more point. So, having just said that I think the mindfulness or MBSR kind of thing is emerging is, is all good. Uh, there is a uh, sad part of me as well. Uh, namely, I, I took the MBSR course and uh, it seemed not to go at all, if I remember correctly, into concepts of not self, uh, not attachment. Um. And I don't think I heard any moral teachings either. The supposition was that it, as you learn to focus, slow down, that, that those things will naturally emerge. Mm-hmm. I think most people need a little. <laughs> <laughs> right. Pointer. Right. The way, or they're, they're not going to get it. So, mm-hmm. uh, so instead of mindfulness being stealth Buddhism, mm-hmm. first thing it's called it more like Buddhism light. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I wish, I do wish that there's yeah. more of those things. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think you know that's exactly where the debate comes up. So, so you've put your finger on it very nicely. Um, it seems to me that that. Um, if you if you practice in, in in a way in which you're always trying to engage the whole of yourself, then you will very naturally also ask yourself questions about what matters most to you, about what's meaningful to you, and that will lead you into the ethical dimension. I think. Um, so, yes. Okay. Last question. <laughs> yes. Yes. You in the purple. <laughs> That's my wife. <laughs> it seems that, that the two, <clears throat> secular and the traditional, don't have to exclude each other as long as, as they're really clear. So a person could go take a secular Buddhism training, mm-hmm. and as long as that training didn't pretend mm-hmm. forth as all there was about Buddhism, the person who wanted to know some more could still go to the Nimmin Institute mm-hmm. and take a class on the four level truths, the three training. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the danger is that if somehow people get the impression that what they're studying with the, <clears throat> with the, with the non-traditional material has captured the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know how how anybody can work with that except individual teachers mm-hmm. making it really clear you know, this comes from the tradition and we're not including you know, we have Shiva, Samadhi and Praja or we're not focusing on Shiva let's say, whatever, however they want to present it mm-hmm. so that it's, it's fair for people to know there's more right <laughs> right, exactly, and 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 um, you know, I was concerned. I mean, I've read various things that John Kabat-Zinn has written, but it just seems as though recently he started talking about this idea of universal dharma, and and that concerns me for the reasons you just said, where he said, 
you know, and, and the idea is a little bit like secular Buddhism, so maybe we'll come back around to, to that point. Where, well, he doesn't mean it in that sense, no. No, he's just used the term universal dharma. And, and he's kind of saying, well, you know, you strip away all of the, the, the cultural accretions and you're left with something universal. And what it is, is mindfulness, you know, in, in the sense that he's described. Now, maybe that's a wonderful deep sense that can be, can be brought out over time. So, so these are all questions, you know, we, 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 we need to stay open to them. I mean, uh, the, the, the suggestion I made of, of, always asking more questions, if you take it seriously, means you don't reach a conclusion on this either. Um, it's an open question. And so I'm sure that next week, when next week's speaker presents, uh, you'll get another side of it, those of you who return, and uh, it'll be an opportunity to deepen your experience and understanding still more. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.